You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. 2 Timothy chapter 4 is where we'll be anchored this morning. If you don't have a Bible, look at the seats in front of you. You'll see Bibles you can grab. You turn about four-fifths of the way through the New Testament. Hopefully you'll find 1 Timothy. And then by logic, that will lead you to 2 Timothy. We finish our series this morning on the distinctives and the pillars of what we stand on, what drives us, what, what motivates us as a church. And it really comes together on this particular pillar of unapologetic preaching. Just this concept reminds me of a, a, a practice and a, a behavior that I have to do nearly every day that I don't enjoy, and that's shaving. In fact, the real estate of shaving has increased significantly over the last few years as I try to remove any evidence of hair on this dome. And what I do is I realize that I need help. Yes, you can feel some of it, but I really need help to make sure that I'm accomplishing my mission. And so God has blessed us in our 21st century with the ability to have one of these. That's a a mirror, and this one is particularly clear. Ooh, I don't like what I see. But what can happen, and this happened several years ago as we were church planters and had a budget that was very minuscule, is I had one of these that had fogged over. And there was a lot of film and muck that had built up, but I could kind of see my outline. There were a few small patches where I could kind of see the reflection of my face. And because we couldn't really afford a $10 replacement of our mirror, I just decided to go with what I had. The problem with that is that inevitably, on Sunday morning, one of my girls would lean over to me as I sat in the front row and say, Dad, you missed a spot is that somehow I haven't fulfilled my mission completely because I didn't have the tool and I hadn't stayed focused. Now the reality of this tool parallels the reality of the Word of God. And that is that oftentimes we don't like what we see. But it is intended to give us clarity to understand who God is, who we are, and what we need to do to accomplish His mission. And so as we attend to this final pillar in this final series, it is arguably the most important pillar, the most important tool and resource we have, not only as a church, but our lives as individuals to successfully accomplish the mission. I want you to see the big idea in your notes, and that is the greater the fog, the more crucial it is to stay focused. And friends, we live in a day that it is not unlike Timothy's day, not unlike the context to which Paul was writing, and yet we see the fog gathering thicker and thicker and thicker. So the reality is, is that God has given us, just as he gave that first century church, the exact tool that we need as a lighthouse, as it were, to be able to sail through the fog in a safe fashion toward our destination. Let me read the passage we'll be studying, and then we will unpack it together. 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. 
For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, with the Lord, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing." A passage that will really highlight more practically the application of unapologetic preaching that begins with this focus. Number one, stay focused on your motivation. Stay focused on your motivation. Paul has just explained to Timothy that he has the exact tool that he needs as the man of God to fulfill the mission at Ascend Church of Ephesus. Chuckle, chuckle. And that is the word of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture, all of God's word from Genesis to Revelation, every word contained in the original manuscript has been God-breathed. It is not something that man came up with, although man did write it down. 2 Peter chapter 1 says that man wrote as the Holy Spirit moved them. So the, the, the personalities were used, the education and experience were used, but it is the Holy Spirit, unlike any other book that has ever been written, that moved those authors to write down his very words. So what we find in this book is the very God-breathed word that he wants us to hear. And it is profitable Verse 16 and 17 says, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness so that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That every good work is very important. Paul refers to that as the mission of a believer. In Ephesians 2.10, we have been saved by grace through faith. That is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that nobody can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. That is the mission of every Christian who is saved by grace through faith. And so Paul tells Timothy that you carrying out this mission is accomplished by understanding and applying God's word. Now he says as a transition point in verse 1 of chapter 4 something that a lot of kids get to hear from their parents. Paul says, I charge you. It is a Greek term that means the handing off of responsibilities, the handing off of duties, the handing off of an office. And it reminds me as a, a parent of the tossing of the keys to your teenage daughters. I've experienced this over the last couple of years. And I'm tossing the keys of my car and in the air I'm like, no. And as they catch those keys with the excitement of being able to drive the car, listen to their music, go wherever they want to go within reason, there are a lot of instructions that come along with that, aren't there? Buckle your seatbelt. The red light and the stop sign is not a suggestion. 
Everybody else that is on the road is a horrible driver. Beware of them. Those instructions are given. Why? Because we are handing off responsibility because we know what is at stake. But inevitably, that young driver will have a question in their mind that we had when we were teenagers, and that is, why? What's the big deal? I got this, Dad. And it's as though Paul is anticipating that response of young Timothy. As the keys of the mission are tossed from the great and aged apostle, the young pastor catches them, and he's excited about carrying out the mission. He's excited that he has the tool that he needs to carry it out successfully. But Paul reminds him of the motivation that should drive him. He says, I charge you. Now, the word charge is a present tense verb. Why is that important? It's because what follows is intended to be a pattern of Timothy's life. Which, by the way, incidentally, in verse 8, we see a phrase that will draw our attention to the instruction is first to Timothy, but then to all believers who love the Lord Jesus Christ and look forward to his appearing. And so technically, this is specifically to Timothy, but extends to all followers of Jesus Christ. So the keys of the mission fall in young Timothy's hands, and Paul reminds him that this is your motivation. You are in the presence of God. Do you see it there in the text? Now, I don't know about you, but I hear that, and I tend to respond like a teenager does to the instructions of driving. Okay, I get it, but do I? Paul says, you are in the presence of the God of the universe. You want to learn about God? Read Leviticus. And if that intimidates you, check out Bible Talk, a podcast by Nine Marks on Apple Podcasts. I just listened to it. The new episode dropped, Leviticus 1 through 7. Mind blown. Leviticus reminds us of the holiness of God of the fact that we need an intermediary just to have the hope of being able to look upon him, to be able to be in relationship with him. That's Leviticus, and then that is Christ. And so Paul is saying, listen, Timothy, remember, you are in the presence of God, not a God of your own design, which we'll see the audience that we preach to has that expectation. God fits in my box. He matches my definitions, my expectations, but the God of Scripture should blow that box out of the water. And so Paul says, remember, Timothy, the motivation is you are in the presence of God. And if that's not enough, he gives three more illustrations of that. He says in verse 1, this God is going to judge. You know, we look at a, a judge in our society in a way that this word does not communicate. If a judge pounds the gavel, we can appeal. If a boss pounds the gavel, we can complain. If an elected official pounds the gavel, we can vote them out. And so that's the kind of idea that we have for a judge in our context. But when the Bible talks about this judge, he is perfect and he is definitive. And remember what Galatians 6 says, do not be deceived, beloved. God is not mocked. 
Whatever you sow, you will reap. And so maybe some of you are kind of playing around with some sin right now. Maybe some of you are kind of wrapping God in a nice little box that you're comfortable with, and he's exposing some things in your life. Paul is reminding Timothy, and he's reminding you, God will judge not only the living when he comes, but also the dead. There is no one that is outside of his judgment. But then he says, not only will he judge the living and dead, he will appear someday. Do you remember when you were growing up and mom said, wait till dad gets home? Or some of you might have lived in a family where dad said, wait till mom gets home. But there was the anticipation of that appearing, and that in, it was intended to motivate you, right? Well, the same thing when the Bible talks about the, the appearing of Christ. And, and I've been reading through Ezekiel. Rabbit Trail didn't cover this in first service. Probably should stop, but I won't. Ezekiel talks about the prince. The prince is David. And the expectation is for the Jews is to realize that there will be a prince that comes that will embody all that David was but will perfect that. And that is none other than Jesus. And that was the motivation for the Jews to repent and in their exile come back and turn back to God. And this is the same motivation that, that, that Paul is giving to Timothy is that Jesus is going to return again. And for some of you, it will cause you to recalibrate and repent. For others of us, we're saying, yes, come Lord Jesus. And for most of us in our life, that ebbs and flows, doesn't it? But it's intended to motivate us. And then there's a third illustration, and that is his kingdom. Oh, I wish we were in the Gospel of Matthew right now. The Gospel of Matthew, if you're going to go to a book of the Bible that unpacks the, the glories and the motivation of the kingdom, it's the Gospel of Matthew. And what Matthew says is that the kingdom of God is real, and it's been inaugurated with Christ. I mean, it's, be, it's begun, and we're experiencing glimpses of it, but there will be one day when we experience it unbridled, fully consummated, and that's unpacked in Revelation 21 and 22. And I don't know about you, but there's hardly a moment that goes by by looking at the news, looking in the mirror of Scripture in my my own life, looking at people in the world that are sick and that are suffering, that I don't say, come Lord Jesus, bring your kingdom now. You kind of hear me getting excited? That's what these realities are intended to do for a follower of Jesus Christ. This is our motivation. Beloved, I think it's important for us to draft off verses 16 and 17 of chapter 3, and that is the importance that the Word of God plays in this motivation. There's been a, an illustration that somehow has come to my mind. It maybe is because they're building a house behind our house, and uh, we no longer have an open field that we get to enjoy. But we've been able to watch the process, and the process begins with excavating the dirt and laying what? A foundation. Now, when that foundation is laid, we don't know a whole lot about the house, and it isn't until the framing starts to work. In fact, my wife walked through there uh, last night and was able to see, okay, here's where the kitchen is. Here's where the living room is. Here's where the, 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 the bedrooms are. And so you start to be able to see the details in the framing, but without a solid foundation, that house would fall apart. And see, beloved, I think sometimes when we think about God and our lives, we have everything upside down. And here's what I mean. The framing of the house is the details of our lives. Would you write that down? The framing of the house are the details of our lives. And that oftentimes when it comes to motivation is where we start. 
That oftentimes, when it comes to the hot topics of the society around us, is where we start. We start with all the details of life. We start with all of our our realities and our expectations and our human interests. But if that's where we start, then our house is built on a shaky ground and it will crumble. So the foundation, beloved, is God, his character, and his word. Would you write that down? The foundation is God, his character, and his word. And when we get that proper order right, then we respond to life in a proper manner. See, oftentimes what we do is we look at life in our horizontal details, then we compare that against what we know, and then we draw conclusions. But this is saying we start with the word, then we look at our lives, then we compare with the word, and then we draw our conclusions. Let me give you a practical illustration of that. One of the social hot topics over the last several weeks since the Supreme Court decided to respond in the way that they did to the Texas law about abortion has been this topic of abortion is a hot topic. It should always be a hot topic because God cares very deeply about it. But here's a lot of the argument that I'm hearing. Follow my logic on this. What about women who are raped? What about women who are sexually abused? What about women who don't want the baby? And friends, that's the house. That's the framing. And if that's where we begin our discussion, if that's where we begin our evaluation, then most likely the house and our conclusions are going to fall. So what does the foundation say about this topic? The foundation says that life begins at conception. It says that the image bearer begins at conception. That is where life begins, and that is what's sacred. And so God condemns the unjust taking of a human life, and that is where we must begin. And then we can start to address the framework of the house and the details and extend compassion, extend solutions, but not compromise the foundation. So it comes back to this point. This is how we tie in to verse 1, is that Paul is saying to Timothy, is remember that as you are carrying out the mission, what is most important in the mission is not you and the details. It's not you and your strategies. What is most important in all of this is God, his character, and his presence. And so, beloved, if we want to be able to accomplish our mission as a church, And as individuals, stay focused on the mission and the motivation. Number two, stay focused on your orders. Stay focused on your orders. So Paul says a present tense verb, I charge you. This is the pattern of your life. And then he hammers this action in verse two. What are you supposed to do? Preach the word. Preach the word. The word preach means to publicly announce religious truths and principles urging acceptance and compliance. Beloved, I think we might look at a term like this and think that it is limited to individuals who have a profession like I do. But if you think about this definition and understand that it is a public proclamation of religious truth and principles urging response and compliance, that's all of our duty. That's all of our privilege. 
And see, I think sometimes we are content to just give information and share some sort of Christian truths with somebody, but that's not preaching. Preaching is also urging response and compliance, and that's found in the three verbs that follow in verse 2. We preach the word, reproving and rebuking. The words to reprove and rebuke mean to establish the standard and show where there is misalignment. We establish the standard and then we reveal where there is misalignment. And I got to tell you, beloved, I hear this when I ask people what they think about the preaching at Ascend. Over the last 11 years, I've heard many people say, well, you know what? It hurts, it's painful. And some people say that because of the messenger, and I get that, and I'm trying to work on it. I was talking to a gentleman who is a part of our church core group, part of the church plant, and he says, you've grown as a preacher. Praise God. But praise God and pray that that just continues. We reprove, we rebuke, and what hurts should be that you see the clarity of the mirror of Scripture and you say, man, there are some areas of my thoughts that are off. There's some speech that is off. There are some behavior and some philosophical practices in my life that are off the standard of God's Word, and the Word of God is supposed to expose that. And that could be burdensome, can't it? Which is why it's so important that the next verb occurs, exhort. The word exhort means to reveal and establish the path of hope. To reveal and establish the path of hope. Beloved, all of us in some aspect are off the standard of righteousness and that needs to be exposed in our lives, but so does the hope The hope of Jesus Christ is that there is nothing in your life that is so off course that can't be restored by the gospel. The hope is that there's no pain from your past, either caused by others or caused by you, that can't be reconciled and restored through the gospel. Do you believe that? Well, I think most of us would say yes, but It's a lot harder when that pain is real, isn't it? It's a lot harder when we've settled into ruts that we think it's impossible to come out of. But the fact is, is that the gospel is the hope. No matter whether you believe it or not, just like the sun on a cloudy day, it is there, it is real, and there is hope. But he also says in verse 2 that this preaching carried out in these fashions should be done, look at the phrase, with complete patience. Do you see it there in the text? The complete patience is a reminder that preaching work is farming work. Very rarely do you preach the word of God to somebody and immediately they respond and perfectly they respond. So Paul is reminding Timothy that, listen, you will preach a message and the person who needs to hear it and respond might not be at a place where fruit is ready. But to the degree that the Holy Spirit is working in their life, to the degree that they are obedient in wrestling with the text, God is doing some farming work, have complete patience, and then it says, and teaching. The word teaching is a verb that is closely tied with the verb to learn. And this is the goal of 
preaching. Learning is not simply understanding. Learning is completed when it's lived. Learning that stays only at a level of knowledge is useless, and it is not learned. Learning, when it comes to the gospel, is an understanding that is applied. That's why we constantly talk here at Ascend about your so that. Paul says, this, beloved, is your order. Preach the word. How do we do this? Let me give you four ways. Number one, we are always on duty. That's something that I grabbed from this text. It says, be ready. In season, when it's comfortable, when it is convenient, when the people that you are talking to want to hear what you say. But then Paul says, when it is out of season, when it is not convenient, when it is not comfortable, when the audience that you're in the presence of does not want to hear. Which, by the way, let me just give you a a little bit of a free advice. If you have shared the gospel clearly and somebody says, I do not want to hear anymore, stop. Oftentimes as Christians in our fervor and our excitement to fulfill the mission, we just keep going and what happens is the offense is on us because of our method. I've had my own experience with that. I've heard, in fact, I talked to some people in between services that were talking about just friends and family that did, would not come to church because they've been hurt by people in the church. And sometimes the offense in the church is because the gospel is offensive. Beloved, listen, the gospel is offensive. In John chapter 3, as John was given the, 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 the commentary on Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus, John says, the dark hates the light. So even when you share the gospel with grace, if the Holy Spirit is not ready to produce fruit, it is most likely they will hate what you say and be offended. But let's also make sure that the method that we are going about with the communication of the gospel is not what is offending people. So there will be times when it is not convenient, when it is not comfortable, when the people that we're around, uh, they may not want to listen, but we have the responsibility and the privilege to carry out our orders and always remember we are on duty. Number two, look for red apple opportunities. This has served me well practically. You're always on duty. That means in the checkout line of the grocery store. When the FedEx guy drops off the package. When you're interacting with people on social media, you're always on duty and look for red apple conversations. When you're checking out at the grocery store and you ask the person, how's your day going? And they say, not great. It's not the time for you to say, give me the receipt. Hope, Hope it goes well for you. It's your opportunity to say, would you just give me one way I can pray for you? And you never know if that's going to be a red apple ready to be plucked. We're always on duty. We look for red apples. Number three, we give clear biblical truth. Clear biblical truth. See, oftentimes what we want to do is we want to give Christianese, don't we? I see this in funerals a lot. Your loved one's in a better place. Well, how do you know that? Did that person have a testimony of the gospel? Do you have evidence of fruit of the gospel in their life? Then don't give them platitudes. 
Give people clear biblical truth. Point people to Christ. Use terms that are in Scripture. Make sure that what you're sharing with them is biblical truth and that is clear. Bring it to number four. Make sure that you're sharing the truth in love. We're not just pulling the pin on gospel hand grenades. We are not just showing off the amazing knowledge that we have. We understand these are image bearers made in the likeness of God that are included in the God loving the world that he gave him his son for so that if they believe, they realize the gift and the love that God intended for them. We are always on duty. We look for red apples. We are clear in our biblical truth and we share the truth in love. Beloved, listen, this is our order. Stay focused on it. Number three, stay focused on your audience. Stay focused on your audience. Wouldn't it be great if the audience that we preached the word to wanted desperately to hear it? And yet Paul reminds us in just a couple of verses that Timothy's audience is very similar to our audience. Look at verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. And what is the end of this? Look at the end of verse 4. They wander off into myths. What does that mean? It means they follow whatever scratches their itch. They follow and pursue whatever their passions are. And that can be in the form of a popular Christian book about a person that nobody knows about in the Old Testament that prayed a prayer and all of a sudden somebody captures that prayer and says, well, I've got an agenda that I'm going to write a book about and it's going to be a a me-focused agenda and not a gospel-centered agenda. And it's not going to take the context into that passage, but it's going to sell hundreds of thousands of books. It can show up in that form. It can show up in the form of an organization that would call themselves a church that will not talk about sin that will only speak in popular terms about what's going on in our society around us. It can show up in that fashion. It can show up in others who commiserate with people who have been hurt in the church and just say, yeah, then leave the church and just live your life and have your own personal relationship with Christ. It can show up in those and so many other forms, and it happens today. It happens in our community. But there's a process that leads to that end where people just wander and try to find a new myth. And what is that process? It's a process of people bent on their own passions. Verse three. You know, friend, I wanna ask you, why are you here today? What is the lens that you're going to evaluate your experience here today? Many of you come from other churches. Why did you leave that church to come to our church? If the answer to those questions is, I'm looking for a place that my kids love. If your answer to those questions is, I'm looking for a place for my teenagers to fit in. 
If your answers to those questions are, I want to like the style of the music, I want the elders to know me, I want people to make me feel comfortable, I want good coffee, I want good donuts, beloved, listen, those are slippery slopes. Those may be evidence that you're driven by your own passions. Let me give you two ways that you should be evaluating the church that you are going to invest in. The first one is that what is most important is an accurate teaching of God's word. An accurate teaching of God's word before the donuts, which by the way, they're amazing today. Before whether or not your kids had fun in kids ministry before the teens fitting in, before the music, before those things, the first question you should be asking is, does that church accurately teach God's word? Which, by the way, I'm just gonna come over here for a moment to give you an aside and to give you a public service announcement to let you hear it from my mouth, and that is, we don't get it all right. We're not perfect in our understanding of God's word. But I will tell you this, the method of interpretation that we use to draw our conclusions is the method modeled by Jesus. It's the method taught by the the gospel of Matthew. It's the method that the prophets used in the Old Testament, that even Moses used in Genesis and through Deuteronomy. It's the, the method that the apostles used in the New Testament. And so we use that method, and with our finite abilities, arrive at conclusions that we can have a high level of confidence that they are accurate. But listen, the responsibility is on you. We live in a day where we simply go to doctors and we go to bookstores and we go to conferences where we are expecting the expert to tell us how to think, to tell us how to live, and we take that same approach to the Word of God. And we follow the popular podcasts. We follow the churches that seem to be growing in our area. We follow the the radio preachers that, that make us laugh and that we're interested in. But beloved, listen, you have a responsibility to study the word for yourself. And so what I'm doing this morning is that I'm not giving you fish. I'm teaching you how to fish. I'm teaching you how to interpret God's word. Beloved, that is the expectation that Paul gives to Christians, but it is not our natural tendency. We go to whatever scratches our itch. The Ephesians followed anything that was new. What it was the new bestseller? What was the new innovative thought? And Paul reminds Timothy and he reminds us that when you are looking for a church, the most important first question is, do they teach the word accurately? But then the second question is, is what is most important in your personal life that your thoughts, feelings, words, or be, and behavior are governed by an accurate understanding of the gospel? So not only should you be at a church that is teaching the word accurately, but they should be teaching it and equipping you to ensure that your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions, your desires are governed by an accurate understanding of God's word. Not that you heard a verse somewhere and you think that it, you know, I I love this one that people say, well, you know, doesn't the Bible say God helps those who help themselves? No. (laughs) 
So we're not talking about a verse pulled out of context here, a verse that kind of conflates a lot of different topics in the Bible and weaves them together. We're talking about an accurate understanding of God's word that governs your thoughts, emotions, your desires, and your expectations. Listen, if we as a church are characterized by this, not only as a whole, but as the individuals, then guess what? All of those other things are going to take care of themselves. Your kids are going to enjoy uh, Sunday school. The students are going to be equipped with tools of the gospel. The elders are going to know you in the right context. People are going to make you feel welcome. I hear that testimony over and over and over again. But what drives you? Because the audience of Timothy's day and the audience of our world, apart from the Holy Spirit, is me first, not the word first. So, beloved, if we want to fulfill our mission as a church and as individuals, we need to stay focused on our audience. Number four, stay focused on your responsibility. Stay focused on your responsibility. Paul says in verse five, as for you, Timothy, as for you, Ascend Church, as for you, Jeff, fulfill your work of ministry. That's what it says at the end of verse 5. Fulfill the work of the ministry. What is our responsibility is to fulfill the work of the ministry? What is the work of the ministry? Well, it gives us four ways to understand it. Verse 5 says, always be sober-minded. That means not given to excess. Not being Christian bipolar. What do I mean by that? That means on one day it's all about Jesus and on the next day you're depressed. There's a phrase that we use in the Terrell house. I tell our girls, I learned this in baseball, slow the game down. That's why we see so many rookies that get to the major leagues and they're in that first game and man, they're trying to play the game too fast. And the game is fast the higher you go. But the veterans say, slow the game down. Do what you know how to do the way you were taught to do it. And guess what? Everything will fall into place. But, but as Christians, we can just get so blown away by mandates from the government, by, 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 by uh, health concerns, by people and their response to us on social media. And before we know it, we're swinging to one extreme or the other. And Paul tells Timothy, part of the work of ministry is to slow the game down. Remember the mission. Remember the objective. Remember the tools and use them. But then he says, not just be sober-minded, but also endure suffering. What does it mean to endure? It means don't run away from it. But man, that's what we do, don't we? There's a rock in my shoe, and all of a sudden I stop my running, I stop my walking, and so we should. But that mentality is often how we approach any suffering. But God often uses suffering in our lives as a tool to conform us to the image of Christ. And so Paul says part of the work of ministry is enduring. Go through it. Rely on Christ. See that he's refining you. Endure suffering. And then he says, in number, uh, third, do the work of an evangelist. If we're not careful, especially people who come from my background where I grew up, we might think of evangelists as the RV pulling into the church for a week of revival meetings. And that is an aspect. 
We might also think that evangelism is the the responsibility of missionaries or leaders in the church. But the fact is, is that the work of an evangelist is for everybody. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you and I have the responsibility to work as an evangelist. What does that mean? It means that every circumstance, every context we see as an opportunity to point people to Christ, either by the way we respond to them or by the way that we teach them. Which brings us to a summary which is fulfill your ministry. What is the work of the ministry? Well, it's our mission. Lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied to the glory of God. Beloved, there are some churches that say, well, that's the ministry of the church as a whole. And so they will uh, design their entire philosophy around the church creating evangelistic ministries, the church doing mission, the church doing this or that. But, But here, what we have concluded as we've studied the New Testament is it's our responsibility as individuals. And the church will develop ministries, they will develop training, we will develop those formal activities, not for the purpose of fulfilling it as an organization, but to equip you and I as individuals to do what we are called to do, and that is carry out the mission, which is our responsibility, fulfill the mission. So beloved, if you want to fulfill the mission to which God has called you, stay focused on your responsibility. Number five, stay focused on your hope. Verse 6 is an interesting transition. Paul comes back to his own personal testimony. He says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. Let me just pause right there. That, that phrase, drink offering, it comes from the Old Testament. It's from that book, Leviticus. And what the Jews would do is they would put wine in a cup and they would pour it out on the altar, on the sacrifice, until every last drop had been spent. By the way, beloved, that's what Sal and Karen have done here. God filled up their cup for their time here at Ascend. We had hoped that it would be a lot longer, but they poured out every last drop for the glory of Christ. And Paul says, I am being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has, been, has come. He's not speaking metaphorically. He's talking about, I am probably going to be executed for my faith. His conclusion, verse 7, is that he fought the good fight. He finished the race. He kept the faith. Beloved, that is to drive us. That is our hope is that one day we will stand before the God of the universe and he will say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. And we will receive, verse 8, the crown of righteousness. There's a lot of opinions on what the crown of righteousness is. Some believe that you kind of assemble these physical crowns and you cast them at Jesus' feet, which that, that works well if you're a Christian recording group. But if we look at it, how Paul actually uses it in his epistles, he's using that as a metaphor to talk about eternal life. And I think sometimes we can get hung up on what is heaven going to be like? Is it going to be pearly gates? Is it going to be, you know, crystal clear sea? Is it going to be paths of pure gold that we can see down through them? What is heaven going to be like? And I would say the only information we need is that we will be dwelling with Christ. And the more that we study about him, the more that we learn about him, that is sufficient. And even if it is just a desert, if we are with Christ, awesome. That's what the crown of righteousness is, is that we will have the privilege of being with him. That is our hope. 
And the only way that we will be there and know for certain that we will is if we live a faithful life that gives evidence that the gospel has changed us. Many of you know I love movies. I especially love historical movies, American history movies, and there's one in particular, I've gotta give this caveat before I get into this illustration, that just, you gotta make your own decisions with your convictions on whether you can watch a movie like this, but The Patriot, it's Mel Gibson. Benjamin Martin. It's a fictional character, but he, he won his acclaim as a warrior during the French and Indian War. And the movie even begins, and he says, I have long since thought that my sins would come to haunt me. Oh, it gives me chills. And so his decision was, I'm going to live a life of passivity for the rest of my life. I don't want to come anywhere close to war. I don't want to come anywhere close to politics. And he faithfully lived that out until the war for independence came to his doorstep. And as the British came through the area, one of his sons was actually killed by a British colonel. And you can just see that warrior mentality with Benjamin Martin just clicks. And all of a sudden, the focus of his life is vengeance. And so he's even willing to gather some soldiers to fight against the British. But what's driving him is vengeance. And as those battles play out, his oldest son is actually killed by that same colonel. And you can just see Benjamin Martin is just like vengeance. And he grabs the flag that his son had been sewing together that represented the cause for independence. And you can see this war going on in Benjamin Martin's mind. And the movie culminates in this massive battle at the end. And there's this huge battle. And Benjamin Martin knows the colonel is going to be there. And the smoke of the, the guns and the cannons are, are it is thick and it's fog and there's one opening and he sees that colonel and Benjamin Martin it's like you're ready for this thing come on and he takes off after the colonel and as he does the French major says the men are faltering and Benjamin looks back and he sees that those men who had lined up against the British are running for the trees and in that moment, he has an opportunity, personal vengeance or the cause. Well, if you've seen the movie, he picks up that flag and he waves it. And the men see the reminder of the cause and they turn from their cowardice and they gain courage and the rest is Hollywood history. But the point that I want to draw out is this. When it comes to your Christian walk, what is driving you? Is it your own passions? Is it your own desires? Is it your own vendetta? Or is it the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the cause of the kingdom of Christ, as it is outlined and put forth clearly in his word? 